praying for God's wisdom in that. Uh, and that's a time that we just pray for church. We pray for our people. We pray <clears throat> for God's guidance when it comes to where we're supposed to be and uh, for wisdom and protection. So you're invited to that, and we hope you take advantage of that. Lord, we are um, we're just really a people that stray easily. We're a people that when you bless us, we become very familiar with that blessing far too soon. And God, quite frankly, we're a people, it's not just within us to pray. It's in our hearts, it's in our spirits to pray, Lord, but our flesh is weak and and that we struggle. And so, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. And we thank you that, God, you, um, you bless your people. You've promised that, and you do, and we thank you for that. Lord, be with us as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray, amen. So last week, <clears throat> we had four points, and it was this. The unjust judge, the righteous judge, the persistent widow, and the return of Christ. Now, all of the parables have something to do with salvation. Some of them are a lot more obvious. Uh, this morning's parable that we're studying is really a lot about salvation. And that's how Jesus designed these things. So we're going to read our scripture for this morning. There's going to be other scriptures that you can look at as we go. This scripture happens to be on your little handout that was given to you. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we're going to look at three different things this morning. For those of you who like outlines and things nice and tidy and stuff, we have three things for you. Number one, we're going to look at the Pharisee. Secondly, we're going to look at the tax collector. And finally, we're going to look at salvation. So let's begin with verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So the question is, to whom was Jesus speaking? Historically, he was speaking to a, a very diverse audience. In other words, he wasn't just looking at the Pharisees when he was teaching this. The Pharisees were part of the crowd that was there. And you can see, as we go through this parable, that it was, it was really uh, targeted to them to teach this, uh, this, this lesson. So we know that he was speaking this parable, at least in part, to the Pharisees. And the next question is, within that first sentence, we have the question, is, in what were they trusting? Well, he also told his, this parable to some who trusted what? In themselves. That they were righteous. 
So this is, this is what was happening. They were trusting in themselves. And by the way, we all trust in ourselves to some degree. Is this too loud or is it okay? Is it okay? Okay. We all trust in ourselves to some degree. Leaning upon our own abilities is a natural response to the fear and the demands of the flesh. I know very few people who every time they have to make a decision immediately goes to, goes to prayer. <clears throat> all these crazy drivers around me all the time, and I know I'm not one of them, but when they veer over into my lane, and maybe I veer into their lane, I'm, I'm, I don't pay that much attention when I'm driving, which we should pray about that, by the way. So what happens is, I don't pray right then necessarily. I mean, if I see a semi coming at me, I may, I may say, help! And God knows I'm talking to him. But very few of us pray for every decision that's taking place. So a lot of these decisions we make in life are out of experience, uh, where, we, uh, where we come from, who we are. There are strengths that we can find within us that might be an encouragement to us. Perhaps we are gifted in certain areas. Intellect, not necessarily. Athletics, way not necessarily. Reading, mathematics, oh, way, way, way not necessarily mathematics. The arts, charm. I know, I know. (laughs) leadership (laughs) an ability to bring comfort or peace to people who are suffering by the way that's a great gift maybe you have an ability to immediately and accurately assess a situation and respond appropriately I'm known to be slow on the uptake Somebody can say something, and several people around the table go, ah, and I'm going. It comes to me a little later. That's not one of my gifts. But this, if you're a believer in Christ, you already possess every fruit listed in the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Some of you are going, hey, he's memorized Scripture. No, that's a song. And praise God, it's Scripture. That's how I memorize scriptures through song. But we already have those nine gifts. So we all have those if you're a believer. So how do we judge if we are extraordinarily gifted in some area? Maybe it's athletics or the arts or something like that. Maybe it's academics. And there are tests that you can take or there's competition. The truth is we judge our giftedness by comparing it to others who are gifted in the same area. That's why there are trophies and medals. And yet we know that the brightest, the best, the most talented person will not, cannot attain a perfect record in any area of life. We are not 100% ever. And within the church, it is common to compare our spiritual walk to other believers' walks, right? Typically, maybe so we can feel a little better about us. You know, how many of you have ever had a really bad week with sin? No volunteers, huh? 
Okay. John in the back. It's true. You go through seasons sometimes where some of the things that were not tempting to you at all are just dogging you. Those may be the times when we start thinking, well, Lord, at least I'm not as bad as Pastor Tom. There's always one Baptist. (laughs) So, again, we see in our scripture, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So the Pharisees, not really known to be very humble, were not merely claiming superiority on the level of education. They were highly educated or privilege. Sometimes it was a heritage you inherited or power. They were claiming superiority concerning their righteousness. Now, not just their level of righteousness. They were claiming to be righteous. How did they make their case for being righteous? How could they convince themselves that they were truly righteous? How did they elevate themselves above the common Jew? They did this by establishing laws that were beyond the ability of the common person to obey. And we've seen this throughout the New Testament where Jesus would break these laws because they were man-made laws. He didn't break ceremonial law or biblical law. You know, you can't do anything on the Sabbath. And we've read about those. So they created these laws that no common person could yield to because it affected everything. As a matter of fact, the laws were so ridiculous that no one could obey all of them. But the difference was that the common person was under the authority of the laws and were prosecuted for breaking them. So these fellows get together over the course of time and they create these laws that are burdensome on anyone that's living. And they are taking note of the people who break these laws and they're prosecuting them. Now the assumption is that they are keeping the law, but they were not keeping the law. The difference was... They lied about it. The Pharisees broke them and lied about it. How did Jesus view these guys? We have a bit of a hint in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Matthew twenty-three, twenty-five: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's right. They had created an unattainable body of works under which the common Jew would fail for the purpose of elevating themselves so they could claim themselves to be righteous. Now, think about that. They created a system so you would fail so that they could get up and proclaim themselves to be righteous. This kind of falls under that old, do as I say, not as I do. So here it is. If you have not received Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, whether you recognize it or not, the only hope you have 
of going to heaven is based upon not being as bad as someone who you believe deserves hell. I want to say that again. The only hope you have if you have not received Christ of going to heaven is based upon not being as bad as someone that you believe you have judged to be worse than you and deserves hell. Because if you haven't received Christ, you're under the law. It's impossible to keep. Not just the man-made laws. Ten Commandments. Can't keep this. Not perfectly. And that having been said, most of those who are not believers believe that only the vilest of people deserve hell because in their mind that means they are safe from going there. You know, people like Adolf Hitler, mass murderers. We look at those folks and we say, now they deserve hell. And by the way, there's a huge gap between Adolf Hitler and me. Really? Did Adolf Hitler deserve hell? If he did not receive Jesus, he deserved hell. If you have not received Jesus, you deserve hell. But the good news is coming. By the way, the assumptions of those that they can work their way into heaven, because that's what it gets down to. What must I do to be saved? If you're not looking at Jesus, the only solution to our flesh and our mind is works. I have to be a good boy and a good girl. I have to be good. And by the way, some religions will lay out for you everything you have to do in order to be good enough. Now, if you believe you can work your way into heaven, most of you would say, I'm just happy to get in. I'm going to, the door's going to open, I'm going to slide in, I'm going to back up against the wall, and that's fine with me. Really? It will not be fine with you, because if you think you can work your way into heaven, now you think you can work your way up. Doesn't that make sense? You know, I'm going for middle management in heaven. That's what I'm doing. I'm even going for an officer. Right, right below Michael, Gabriel, God. It is true, though. So the problem the scribes and Pharisees encountered by establishing these laws were twofold. Number one, they did not have the authority to establish their own standards by which people could gain righteousness. They didn't have the authority of the exercise. Number two, the standard that had already been established by God was the standard of perfection, which no human could meet, including the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees may have been judging the people by their laws, but God was judging everyone by His laws. And it's still true today. So these Pharisees were not righteous. They were self-righteous. You ever met a self-righteous person? Leave pastors out of this, by the way. Sometimes you can be really self-righteous. Unless you're married. There's a certain balance that happens in there. And it's a good thing. Have you ever felt self-righteous? Have you ever been self-righteous? Kind of depends on the company you keep sometimes, right? What happens when you're in the presence of those who are self-righteous? 
The last part of this verse tells us what happens. Luke 18, 9, still on that verse. He also told his parables, this parable, to some who trusted in themselves. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We see this time and again. You know what contempt looks like, don't you? Here's some examples. Historically, Second Chronicles 36.16, But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. Historically, we see examples of contempt. In prophecy, Second Peter 3.3 3 says this, Scoffers will come in the last days of scoffing, following their own sinful desires. During Christ's ministry on earth, when, he's, when he brings this little girl back to life, Jesus said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. At Christ's scourging, Matthew 27, 28 says, And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. At Christ's crucifixion, Mark fifteen thirty. By the way, who was doing this? Scribes, Pharisees. Mark fifteen thirty one says. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, "He saved others; he cannot save himself." Mark sixteen fourteen. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Notice that contempt has no respect for its victims. Even when it targets the Son of God, it shows no respect. So we know that these Pharisees were self-sufficient because they said we looked at ourselves and they were self-righteous and viewed all others with contempt. Now we proceed to one particular Pharisee in this parable, and he is a doozy. The Pharisee, Luke 18, beginning with verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Now, that's the NASB standard, the version. I like that. He was praying to himself. Kind of get the impression the Pharisees wouldn't have noticed God if God were not there. God being there was just a formality. But this is what he prayed. God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What a jerk this guy is. He is standing within earshot 
of this hypocrite's prayer, right in his earshot, is a tax collector. And notice what he said. Even this tax collector, contempt. Translation, or especially like this waste of human flesh beside me, this low-life dog of a human being also who swindles and extorts money from us because he's a tax collector, unlike this scourge upon humanity. And the Pharisee goes on, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And by the way, those were both lies. If you look back on the history of what the Pharisees tithed, they were herbs. They were herbs. That's their tithe. So they even cheated on the tithes. As a matter of fact, Jesus makes, makes it clear in Matthew 6, 5, what he thinks of this Pharisee. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, like this guy. What do hypocrites do? They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But what is their reward? It's the praise they receive from the people that they steal from God His glory. They're stealing glory from God. So we have this Pharisee, and he's a doozy. And we know what Jesus thinks of him. The next person we have is a tax collector. So in the same temple at the same time as the Pharisee, there was a tax collector. Most of us know how tax collectors work back then, right? Rome basically said, we need this amount of money per person, and if you can extort above and beyond that, then that's your salary. So these guys were not well respected. A lot of them were scoundrels. So Jesus, for the sake of the parable, has chosen polar opposites to make his point. We have the nicely dressed, socially acceptable, dignified, educated Jewish official who stands and proclaims how much better he is than this tax collector. Let's take a look at the tax collector. Verse 13, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And we can immediately see a difference in these two men's posture. According to the Jewish custom, the tax collector stood far away, perhaps out of respect for the Pharisee. It was also customary to leave a space of four cubits between each other as you went into the temple so you would not hear one another's prayers. The bottom line is he was observing the ceremonial law. The tax collector was observing the ceremonial law, probably in excess, because there's a Pharisee there. And then he bowed his head to pray. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. So beating one's breast is the same way of saying beating your heart. 
as a customary expression, beating one's breast was an expression of how sad or guilty you feel in an obvious or public way. This was a public confession of guilt and sorrow, not a melodramatic show of those who were witnessing this. Then he goes on to pray, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, you have the ability to be merciful to me, even though... I am unworthy. Far cry from the Pharisee's prayer. So what was the end result? What was the conclusion God came to upon witnessing these two men? Verse 14, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. So let's, ta- let's, let's go back to the scene here. Jesus is ministering. His apostles are around him. And he's been menacing to, uh, ministering to the same group of people for a little while. And he turns, and within this crowd are the Pharisees. And if you're a Pharisee, and you're sitting there with all these people watching, and Jesus says, I have a lesson about Pharisees. And you're in the crowd. How would you have responded to this message? This had to be humiliating. Jesus was using them as an example in this parable as those who do not measure up. The Pharisees in the parable is the bad guy, he is the hypocrite. He is the one that should have been standing far off and in humility asking for God's forgiveness. But he wasn't standing far off and he wasn't asking for God's forgiveness. Arrogance and pride will respond typically one way to confrontation. You know what it is? Anger. Arrogance and pride responds in anger to confrontation of truth. The Pharisees had three years of Jesus' ministry where all they were was angry all the time. And so here is this parable and Jesus is saying, you have an option. He's saying that to all the people and he also is saying that to the Pharisees. He says, here's a tax collector whom you shun, for whom you have contempt. And I'm telling you, this man in this parable is justified. And the implication here to these Pharisees is, would you rather be justified or would you rather be a Pharisee? They chose Pharisee. And most of the time we do too. Maybe. We look at Pharisees as a political office, a religious office, but there's a heart of a Pharisee that I think is churning in our flesh. Now, if you're a believer, you're not a Pharisee. But you may have the Pharisee's 
heart. And you look at all of the opportunities Jesus is giving here, and he's saying this is how you can be justified. And the Pharisees were silent. So we have the Pharisee, we have the tax collector, and now Jesus teaches on salvation. In Matthew, Jesus makes a startling statement that definitely applies here. Jesus had just finished teaching the Beatitudes. He comes down the mountain, right? He comes down the mountain, teaches the Beatitudes. And then he goes off into this. Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now here it is, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, exceeds, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of us have stopped there and say, okay, God, give me the list. Give me the list of everything I have to do. Well, read Deuteronomy and all that. But that's really not what Jesus is saying. What he's trying to do is he's trying to help these people understand that those that you respect the most, who lift themselves up as righteous, who you can't even touch, unless you have righteousness that exceeds these guys you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're a Jewish person listening to this, what are you supposed to do with that? See, we're in the New Testament, okay? We have this new covenant. We've had the teachings of Jesus. We've had history where things have continued to be unpacked for us as to what those scriptures mean. And for us, we're saying, this isn't as bad as it sounds because we know that Jesus is the answer. These folks had not had none of this. They are looking at the only authority they've ever known and the only thing that was close to righteousness that they've ever known. They've been taught for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. These are the guys you look to. And if I can just be like one of these guys. By the way, Paul wanted to be one of those guys. And he was. He took the bait. And we're still taking the bait today even though we have Jesus living all around us. If you are a Jewish person listening to this, what are you supposed to do with it? Think about this. If the highly educated, respected, powerful scribes and Pharisees who walk around quoting the Torah and performing all of the rituals and passing judgment on others can't make it into the kingdom of heaven, what chance do you have? It's hopeless. We're lost forever. Who can save us? Now that is the right question. If not the Pharisees or the scribes or the priests, then it's not the law that can save us and it's not the sacrifices that can save us. 
then what can save us? But listen to what Jesus says next. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Translation is this. Whoever exalts himself on earth, refuses Christ, will be humbled at the judgment seat of Christ. But whoever lives in humility by receiving Christ on earth will be exalted in the kingdom of heaven. It's all about Christ. It's all about salvation. If the question, who can save us, had been asked at the end of Christ's teaching of this parable, can you imagine what would have happened if he had replied, I can. I can save you. And this brings us to the heart of the matter. In Romans, Paul makes the following statement concerning the Pharisees. Romans 10, 3 and 4 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that's the English Standard Version. Sometimes right? It's like... So here's a New Living Translation. For they, meaning the Pharisees, don't understand God's way of making people right with Himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And as a result, all who believe in Him are made right with God. It's about Jesus. And in Galatians, Paul says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And then, and he says, this is the problem. If you break one word where the T is not crossed, or an I that is not dotted in your obedience to the law, you're bound for hell. There's no hope. If that's what you're counting on. For us today, it might sound like this. For all who rely on all of the do's and don'ts of religion to make you fit for heaven, you are wasting your time. You have been deceived. Heaven only accepts perfect people, and none of us are perfect. Therefore, the only way to get to heaven is to be adopted by God the Father through receiving His perfect Son. And when you receive Jesus, you receive His perfection, and He becomes your sin. And then we are perfect in God's eyes. There's another way to enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that true? There's no other way to enter the kingdom of heaven. Romans 5.18 Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. Adam's sin stains all people. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made Righteous. First John 5, and this is what God has testified. 
He has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. And later on in that same chapter, he says this, And we know that the Son of God has come, and He has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the only true God. And He is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Through the years, uh, Kim and I and our whole family, to some degree, has had the opportunity of talking with people about salvation. And there are a couple of questions of people that are not sure if they're if they're really saved, and you could say it that way, or there are some people that are wondering if they lost theirs because of something they had, they had done or not done. And um, I just want to encourage you in this. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The Bible says God paid for your sins, past, present, and future. We do have seasons, do we not, where we struggle. And maybe we, um, people who observe us might say, they don't look Christian to me. But I just want to say this, if you've received Jesus Christ, he knew that was going to happen as he was dying on the cross. So some people would say, well, look, I understand my past sins are forgiven because now I'm a new creation, but aren't the, aren't the sins that, are, that follow me now after I, after I receive Christ, don't those tally up against me? No. No, they don't. Christ knew those were going to happen even as you were receiving him. He says, Tom... You feel pretty good right now. You feel pretty strong. Wait till you see 2020. You're going to need me so bad. But at the same time, we don't make light of those sins, right? So here's a question. If I cannot outsend the grace of God, then why bother not to sin? Well, number one, sin builds a history. It's like a computer have a history on there. If you go back and see every site you've visited and all this kind of stuff, that's all tallied. It's information. It affects who you are in the flesh. Number two, sin grieves God. Grieves God. And number three, it hurts other people. And I'm responsible to some degree. Am I not? Aren't you responsible to some degree for the kind of life the people you love can live while they're around you? That's just common sense. That doesn't even have to have anything to do with Jesus. If I'm a jerk whenever you're around me, you don't benefit from that. If I'm living out my life in Christ and you're around me, there's benefit in that. And by the way, I leave a legacy. Do you leave a legacy? No? Yes, you do. What's the legacy I leave if I, as a believer I live my life in sin? What's that legacy? Other people say, well, he got away with it, I can. 
That's a misunderstanding. Is that true? My kids, my grandkids, people I come into contact with, you poor folk. I've never met a more patient group of people in this church. So God says this. Jesus is saying this. He says, look, you can dress the part, you can talk the part, you can act the part and be lost. Because the only way to get to heaven is to let my son adopt you through his blood, take his sin, your sin upon himself, and he gives you his righteousness. So when my heavenly father looks at you, says Jesus, you know what he sees? He sees my righteousness on you. That's pretty freeing. It's pretty freeing. Not easy. Pretty freeing. So we have these responsibilities as believers. I would encourage you to pray about this. He doesn't want you to live a captive. And here's this poor tax collector. Everyone looks down their nose at this guy. And he's not doing this. That's okay, by the way. That's okay. But as in comparison to the, um, the Pharisee, the Pharisee's going... God, I am such a good man. And I'm humble too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How ridiculous is that? And this tax collector goes, can't even speak. He can't even speak. God, I'm a wretched man. Paul says that. How can I ever have hope? For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's how you receive Christ. You come to a point where you just say, I am a sinner. I'm lost. And I do believe what the Bible says. I believe the God of the Bible. I believe that Jesus is His one and only Son. I believe He died and He rose again in conquering death. And that receiving Christ is the only way I can be saved. And you acknowledge those things and here's the prayer. Jesus, I receive you now. Real simple. Jesus, I receive you now. And then you have the righteousness of Christ. Father, we are more like the Pharisee than we like to think we are sometimes. Sometimes our prayers are for the people that are sitting around us and not to you. Sometimes we pray to ourselves. And Father, we just confess that to you. All in all, we are kind of messed up. Sometimes we walk around the world like we don't know you. So, Lord, we just uh, we're in need of you. We thank you for coming to save us.
and walking through all of our failures with us and still have your heavenly Father view us as righteous. So in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.